This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to The Steve Schramm Show, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in apologetics and creation science. Hope you're doing well this week. We have uh, such an exciting interview for you this week uh, and next week, actually. Uh, We uh, went a little longer than I thought we would have the opportunity to, and I consider that a blessing. Uh, We got two great podcast episodes out of it. You're going to learn a lot. We're talking uh, today with the editors of a new book called God in the World of Insects. We're talking to Josh Shoemaker and Dr. Gary Brannis. And uh, we're going to kind of skip the formalities here. I want to get right into the meat of this interview. So real quick, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Josh and Gary. So Josh Shoemaker is an associate certified entomologist with over 20 years of experience uh, in urban pest management. Now he has taught hundreds of seminars on insect and arachnid biology and is a former adjunct professor at Arizona Christian University. He has an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University, a great school over there, and has a degree in business with a minor in chemistry from Cal Poly. All right, now Josh is also a associate certified entomologist, and certainly that shines through in the work he did in the book. It's absolutely great. Now, Dr. Gary Brannis is a consulting entomologist and owner of Yosemite Environmental Services in Fresno, California. Uh, he obtained a PhD in urban and industrial entomology from Purdue University. Now, his research has been published in the Journal of Economic Entomology, and many of his articles have appeared in Industry and Trade magazines. Uh, This book has an A-list of contributors. It's absolutely great. So without further ado, let's get right into the first part of our interview with Josh Shoemaker and Dr. Gary Brannis. All right. Well, thank you uh, for joining us, Gary and Josh. Hello. Hey, we're excited to have you on here, and uh, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about uh, this new book, God and the World of Insects, and we are extremely, extremely excited about uh, this. I've been reading it, uh, devouring it more like for the, past, uh, for the past little while, and 
uh, probably reading it a little slower and more methodically than uh, than they would like, but that's okay. It's I, I've taken my time and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, guys, tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself, maybe um, you know a little bit about what you do, your interest in 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 bugs and so forth. Josh, we can uh, start with you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I I'm a associate certified entomologist, and really that's a uh, certification that specializes in urban entomology, and that's where I've been involved in the last 25 years, and and, and primarily urban entomology is dealing with uh, insects that are in and around homes and urban environments, and uh, just a real passion of mine to uh, to be involved in that field uh, from, I imagine some of the things we'll talk about today in terms of uh, controlling pest insects and, uh, and helping human populations and, and uh, thrive and uh, yeah, so I, again, that's uh, just something I really enjoy. I'm also, I have a master's degree in uh, apologetics from Biola. So putting those two things together is kind of what, uh, what, what brought me here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's, man, that, that's great. Uh, what a subject, man. I mean, just, just to show how, uh, how we can see design in nature, but looking at it through, I mean, the lens of, of, of bugs, <laughs> I mean, I think that's very cool. So an apologetics degree and entomology degree, that is some special kind of combination, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what about you, uh, Gary? Yeah, Steve. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm a husband. Uh, I can't believe it, but we've been married 40 years now. And uh, my father- Congratulations. Yeah, yeah it, it just seems like, yeah. well, in some ways, it seems like I've been married forever. In other ways, it seems I was just yesterday. But um, I'm also a father of four and uh, have eight grandchildren, which is wow. uh, joy of my life. And of course, they're all well above average, too. So I, <laughs> I uh, brag on them when I give presentations. And uh, Grandkids tend to be that way. They are. They're really, really <laughs> special. Yeah. So I, I try to spend as much time with them as I can. Uh, but I'm, I'm uh, an entomologist, an urban entomologist. Um, I have a degree from Purdue University. I studied German cockroaches there for four wow. years to obtain my PhD. And I live in Fresno, California, and not far from Yosemite. And that's one of my favorite places to visit. It's just a beautiful place. And, and when I go there, too, I see God when, I, uh, when I'm out. <laughs> of course, I love insects and, uh, and have grown up in the church. And, and, uh, but still working on that part to try to be a better better Christians. So. Yeah, that's, man, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I mean, we guys like us, you know, we, we live, we live in this, in this world of, uh, theology and apologetics and, and, and even science. And so I, I always, uh, it, it annoys me <laughs> if I'm just being honest when I hear people talk about, well, you know, there's no compatibility between faith and science or one of those, here's my favorite, my favorite atheist retort as of late, there is no evidence for God. Well, uh, I beg to differ. Um, and uh, the gentlemen that we have with us on today beg to differ. And not only that, but they beg to differ in uh, an unlikely place that probably most of us have never explored before. So uh, insects. And I, I love it. And uh, Josh and I, we had a brief phone conversation the, the day uh, before we recorded this. And I told him that I was okay with all insects except for spiders. And so he's going to try, uh, I think, his best to 
convert me over into a spider lover one of these days, but it's going to take a while, I think. Well, actually, Steve, then, then you're actually okay with all insects because spiders aren't insects. They're arachnids. So. Well, hey, all right. Yeah. I'm already – look at that. Look at that. Well, I'm, I guess I, I'm thinking of the bug, you know, wider yeah, bug yeah, yeah. category, but nice correction. Sure. That's, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good. Uh, all right, guys. I mean, what, what was the motivation for writing a book on God and insects? It's an interesting story, Steve, because originally this was just intended to be a small esoteric publication for, for some friends of ours in the urban pest management business. And, and we hadn't really thought about doing anything on a larger scale. And uh, so I, I, I'm good friends with uh, uh, Fuzz Rana at uh, Reasons to Believe. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his, uh, his daughter, one of his daughters used to babysit my kids years ago. And so I was talking to him. And I said, hey, Fuzz, I know this is just a small little thing, but would you mind uh, contributing a chapter? And, and he was immediately said, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. And next thing I know, he, he notifies a couple of people. And, and I started getting some contacts from other people saying, hey, I'm interested in contributing. And, and then really, I think ultimately what, uh, what, what led to, the, to, to a book like this being produced was I was in church um, one Sunday and and our pastor was talking about how God raises up people that have certain specialties and, and, and they're really well suited to do certain things. And, and you know, the, the whole message really impacted me and made me think, wow, you know, here I, I have a background in both entomology and a background in apologetics. And there's not really a book or anything out there that connects those two. Mm. And so I thought with everything that was going on with the, with the people contacting me saying that they would like to contribute, you know, then I sent out some other emails and got some other contributors and, and it just exploded into this opportunity. And uh, I, I mean, I have to think when I look back at that, that, that God was involved with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that, I mean, what a cool thing. I mean, just the way that God brought that all together and turned it into something huge and now we're talking about it here and uh i mean i've you know i'm no i'm no big fish but i mean i've got quite a few people who listen in uh on a weekly basis and so hopefully they'll spread it with other people and uh and get this message out i think it's really really interesting um so uh, uh, tell me a little bit about the process uh you know who you already mentioned uh fuzz rana of course over there at reasons to believe um you know who are some of the folks that you collaborated with in the book and did you choose any of them for a specific reason? Tell us about that. So originally we, when we had a lot of people reaching out again to me, there, there were a few people that, uh, you know, contacted me and said that they had this idea for a chapter and, and it, sometimes it didn't fit in. So it, it was really more about the, the topic and whether or not Gary, I, Gary and I thought that it would fit into the overall scope of the book. And, and again, the book is not just an apologetics book. We really wanted it to be a little bit broader than that. So the first half of the book is, is apologetics, but then the second half, it, it gets into some other areas. We, we wanted the, the focus really to be on insects. And so um, I think that, uh, you know, and, and try to cover all those aspects. Like we, we've even got the appendix in there where we, we talk about some Bible difficulties associated with index or with, with insects. So, so I think um, it, was, it was more about the topics that were, were suggested and what people said that they could write on. I mean, just having recently read it, uh, every chapter, in my opinion, is great. Uh, I mean, it's really, you can tell that when you, um, when you read it, I mean, you can really tell that, 
the people who contributed, they know their stuff. And, okay. um, and, and I, I, I mean, I say that and that sounds like, you know, just a light thing. But the reason I say that is because they all just also happen to believe there is a God. And from an apologetic standpoint, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm hammering this home. Like, let's not believe that, you know, you, ha- you have to keep your brain on one side, um, and your spiritual life on the other side. Um, because that's not how that's not how it works, and uh, we live in God's world, and so God's world is going to uh, naturally match up with God's word. Hey, this might be a good opportunity, real quick, to speak about some of the just the general diversity in the book, and, and to be honest, even the diversity amongst us. I mean, everybody who listens to uh, who this pod to, to to this particular podcast is no, you know, this is no secret, no strange thing at all that I tend to be very friendly towards views who disagree. Uh, I, I am a young age creationist, a committed young age creationist. I teach young age creationism has made up the last, well, this is episode, I think 66 of the podcast and probably 63 of them have been specifically about something related to young age creationism. So, uh, so that's what we talk about here, but we don't talk about it the same way a lot of other folks do. We really try to major on the central aspect of a design and also on new research. Um, we're not so much interested in disparaging folks who don't believe like us. That's not what we do around here. And uh, both Josh and Gary hold views different than myself. Not only that, but I think they hold views different from each other. And most of the people in the book who contributed have views completely different from one another. Uh, and you know, we all have a common goal here. Uh, the common goal is to find the design in nature and tell everybody else about it. I think that's a fair statement. Can you speak to that a little bit? I don't know if both of you want to say something or just whichever yeah. one, but uh, yeah. what are your thoughts on, on that? So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Steve. And when, when we started putting this together and we did have the folks approaching us and, and different people that we were talking to, uh, one of the points that was key to both Gary and I is that we didn't want to create a, anything that was necessarily a, an, a book that would debate internally amongst Christianity what, what view is right. What we really wanted to try and create was something that was more evidential and showed that there is evidence out there for a designer behind insects. And so we, we, we wanted to try and stay away from as much as we could any of the internal discussions that, uh, that, that, that you just mentioned. And again, just focus on more of a, an evangelical or a, uh, and a design type arguments. And so that was really critical to us. And we, we approached people and we said, Hey, that's, we totally respect the different views that the different people hold. Uh, but we asked uh, in most cases, you know, to, to, if there's a particular point that relates to your um, chapter or argument and it's really necessary, you know, then you feel like you need to put it in there, you know, try to maybe footnote it instead. And, right. and, and, and so, and, and, and really all of the authors were, were, were terrific about that. And, and, and the goal was to find, like you mentioned, the common ground and to really uh, focus on what we share in common. And, and the belief that we all share is that every single author that contributed to this, this book believes that they're in, when you look at the world of insects, that there is evidence that there is a designer behind that world of mm-hmm. insects, that there yeah. is a God that has created those insects. And we all shared that belief. And so we really wanted to make that the real focus of, um, 
the, you know, the, the essence, especially of the first uh, section of the book that's, that's apologetically oriented. Yeah. And, and we wanted that, you know, the, again, the real focus to be on, on the designer behind those insects. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, you know, certainly there's a place for the other debate. You know, there, there's, sure. there, there's a place for it, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to, you know, permeate each and every interaction that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters and with our, um, you know, uh, with even with our opponents, so to speak. And, you know, let's just be honest. There's a lot of us who go to church with people uh, who do life with people who we completely disagree with on some very sure. fundamental issues. And we don't ever, you know, we don't ever, you know, fuss and farce with them over it, at least in a way that's not constructive. So I think we could do the same thing in this particular kind of discussion. Yeah. And I think, too, just to add to that, you know, in, in Garenai's experience, you know, there are other Christian entomologists, but there's a lot of, um, you know, non-believers that are in the entomology community. And I think, mm. uh, you know, Gary and I really had a heart for reaching those people. And, and if we got too focused on some of the internal debates and, and things like that, we were a bit concerned that it would detract them from the, the key points of the book, that there is a designer, you know, start there. There's a designer, you know? So, right. Right. So. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I mean, Gary, what are your thoughts? You pretty much concur with Josh, I assume. I, I really do, yes. Um, and I found, too, in, in my reading and studying that uh, biologists in general have, uh, uh, they're, they're so strongly tied to evolution and, and get that training early on in their careers uh, mm -hmm. uh, that they're, they have more problems with uh, 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 science and, and God. Uh, the physicists and folk and astronomers and so forth, they seem to be uh, on board with, they see the remarkable things in their uh, area of expertise and they're, what I've found and in the reading I've, I've done, uh, most of them uh, are believers and uh, just are in wow. awe of God in that. Uh, and from my own personal perspective, uh, the whole process of getting involved with Josh and, and writing, the, helping write the book in a chapter in that, was it goes all the way back to my uh, early college days too when I was starting to question you know can I believe in God and still be a scientist mm -hmm. I enjoyed biology I wanted to be a scientist and go on from there and and uh, fortunately I had two really great professors that I knew quite well they happened to be entomologists and I asked them that question on a road trip we were doing and we had quite a, a very good discussion on that and they basically told me that, yes, you can believe in both, you know, be a good scientist and still believe in God. And so <laughs> I, was, I was satisfied with that answer for many years. And then with the opportunity of uh, getting involved in the book, I really had a chance to dig into it again, do a lot of reading, a lot of study, a lot of reflection. And after that, I'm even more convinced that uh, I can believe in God and still be a scientist. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that. And speaking to the whole issue of different views and everything, I, uh, I'm reminded of something my pastor says. Now, now, y'all, I mean, we're from North Carolina. We're from a place called Yadkinville, North Carolina. It's about as country as it comes. So I'll give you that, I'll give you that caveat. But my pastor always says this, and I, I love it. He says, a man's a fool that won't take another man's stick and beat the devil with it. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and uh, of course the point there is you know if somebody else has got some good material you know using it uh grab it man you know i mean i mean take that and uh, you know beat the devil with it you know get it out there and just put it out there uh and uh, you don't have to agree with every person that you do ministry with but what you do have to do is uh uh be faithful to what god has asked and um 
I, I believe we find that all throughout the Bible that we're to share and evangelize. And I, I'm with you on using your gifts and your talents, doing the things that you know how to do that are unique to you uh, to use that in your evangelism. So I think, man, I think that's awesome. Um, okay, we're going to get into some of the uh, more specific questions here, but 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 real quick, I want to ask you both: uh, if you had to choose, what would be your favorite uh, insect example from the book that evidences a designer? Well, I mean, what's just if you just had one favorite insect, um, what what would it be? So I, I actually get asked that a lot when I talk about this. You know, what's the best argument you have? <laughs> right. And, and honestly, Steve, I I've, I've thought about it. I I can't. I can't think of one that I would say is, is so far ahead of the others. And, and, yeah. and I think that's because there's so many good ones. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, metamorphosis is a great one. B vision with the compound eye, you know, Matt's chapter on parasites is, is great. I mean, there is, there are so many really powerful arguments that it's, it's hard for me to, to nail down just one. I mean, I do have maybe some favorites and we'll probably get into those as we go a little bit more. They'll come out. Okay. But all right. I don't know that even though they're my favorite, it, it may be not necessarily that I think they're the best. They just happen to be ones that I like talking about more, you know? <laughs> fair enough. Uh, yeah, fair enough. What about you, Gary? Is it, uh, you have a favorite example? Well, I, I agree with Josh. It's hard to come up with a favorite, but yeah. uh, since I wrote the chapter on ants, of course I have to go with ants. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I often say ants are number one. So, wow. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a little bit about that. I do have at least one question that's about that's about the ants. So we're we're gonna get into that. And actually, just before reading this, I was reading another book by uh, a brother. Y'all might know. I'm not sure. His name is Andy Walsh. Uh, he wrote a book recently called um, Faith Across the Multiverse, and he has a chapter on there uh, on ants. And I just was like. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was blown away. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. I have to get that. Yeah, it's a, man, it's a great book. It's, yeah, super great book. Uh, so I recommend that one too. I did a, a book review on it on the blog. Um, oh, right everybody on. can go check out. But anyway, um, but yeah, so I've, I've, I've got a double whammy on the ants here recently, and I think I'd have to concur. I think those are some of the coolest. Uh, just, I mean, one, it was either your book or his book. I can't remember which one. It might have been both. Oh, oh no, it was definitely yours, where I was reading about these super huge ant colonies, like just yeah. miles and miles. I mean, I'm probably not even doing it justice, but I think one of them is called the, the what's it called? The Great Big Colony or something like that. It's the, um, I forget what it's called. It's out there in California, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. The giant ant colony, I believe it is. The giant ant colony. <laughs> what a what a perfect name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's great. So, uh, yeah, very cool. Uh, okay. All right. Well, let's get into this a little bit. Let's dive in. Um, so, all right, uh, Josh. Now, you open the book with a particularly fascinating chapter on the subject of convergence. And when I say convergence, uh, what we mean is similarities that can be seen across the animal kingdom in um, seemingly unrelated organisms. So here's what you say, quote, could it be that the undirected processes of natural selection and random mutations repeatedly produce similar outcomes that have the appearance of being designed because they are exposed to parallel environmental pressure, or excuse me, say it again, parallel environmental pressures, perhaps. Yet some examples of convergence are striking. They involve completely different external pressures, different root morphologies, and even different 
genetics, end quote. Uh, can, can you unpack that for us a little bit? You know, give us your yeah. general thoughts about convergence. Yeah, so really to unpack it, I think it'd be best to back up just a bit. As you mentioned, okay. you know, convergence is when we see these like traits developing across unrelated organisms. So a, a real common example that's often cited is echolocation that's in bats and uh, dolphins. Yeah. So, so you, you have these traits that develop in uh, completely unrelated insects, or I'm sorry, in completely related, unrelated organisms. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the insect world, there's just a multitude of examples. And, and now why convergence is, is significant, though, is if you even go back to, to Darwin, you know, at the end of uh, On the Origin of Species, he talks about uh, that evolution would, would produce, and I think his actual quote is, endless forms most beautiful. So, and what he's talking about is that evolution would, would just continue to produce all these different things. And, and that was uh, discussed more by uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. And w- when yes. he talked about something, uh, he, he gave an example of re- rewinding uh, like a VCR, the old VCR tapes. And, and if you were to take evolution and, and turn it backwards several years and then turn it back forward and let it go again, you know, he says that you get something completely different and something the outcome w- would be totally different. The interesting thing about this, though, is that's not what we've seen when we observe nature. And a real example that I like to uh, explain or, or, or use is uh, stick insects. Because everybody's familiar with the stick insect. These little tiny, thin stick insects that resemble you know, twigs and branches, and we see them uh, crawling around and, a lot. And, and so I think most people are familiar with that. Well, there's, there's a, a certain group of stick insects that are called tree lobsters. And that's because they're really big, thick, and stout, and they, they have like, uh, they kind of resemble the, you know, the, the, the stoutness of a lobster, I guess. And, and, uh, but they're a stick insect. And uh, there's these, these particular groups of them that, that uh, were, were, they're on different islands and different locations. And it was originally thought that all of the tree lobsters were related to one another and that they had a common ancestor and that there was something about, you know, the separation of these land masses that caused them to have some slight modifications because they do look different. I mean, they're different species of tree lobster, but what was, what was discovered when they did a DNA analysis is wait a minute, none of these are actually related. They all independently evolved, if that's indeed what happened, they all independently evolved into becoming tree lobsters that not only look like one another, but they even exhibit these common egg-laying patterns. Like most stick insects, they kind of flick or drop their eggs like kind of randomly, so it looks like scattered seeds. Mm-hmm. But all the tree lobsters bury their eggs. But so again, from an evolutionary standpoint, you, when, the, when that was originally looked at, and it was universally thought in the past that hey, all of these must have come from one common ancestor that were then separated by geography. And then now they've, they've kind of had these small modifications. That's why they look a little bit different now. But instead, what we've discovered through DNA analysis is no, these are all related to, or these are not related to one another. They all must have independently evolved. Now that's really striking because that's contrary to what you would expect, right? Yeah. And, well. and so... Um, so when we look at that, we have this convergence pattern. So, so you have to then have a, have a reason for what, what's bringing that about. And so the, the response has from the uh, uh, evolutionary biologist community has been, well, it's probably because there's these evolutionary constraints. 
And, and so this term evolutionary constraint has been applied by some, right? Right. And this is really interesting because what they would suggest, and, and it makes sense, that there's the, the laws of physics and geometry, and, you know, so mathematics and physics are contributing to constraining organisms to only have opportunity to evolve in certain directions. And so there's a limited amount of, of, of ways that evolution can go. But this in itself has some interesting implications because, first of all, the question is, well, what, what, what is driving those or what is creating those constraints? So, you know, they talk about the physics and the geometry. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, Christian apologi apologists who've written about um, fine-tuning and, and, and such. You, you don't really see that in biology. But as Gary mentioned earlier, you know, in, in physics and a lot of other disciplines, we see people talking about fine-tuning. Well, there, there, there are a number of constants that have to be fine-tuned if you're then going to say that there's an evolutionary constraint. So if there's something that, that is driving it, it's because these constants are fine-tuned. So that, that really kind of begs the question then, well, yeah. where's the fine-tuning coming from? And, and so, so ultimately, I mean, when you kind of package what we see with convergence and we see, I mean, cause it, and it goes way beyond that. I gave one example there of stick insects, but I mean, bioluminescence is another one. Um, there's so many different things where we see that have independently evolved, if you will, in, yeah. in all these different groups of insects where we see the same things over and over. And uh, there's a uh, evolutionary biologist uh, by the name of um, uh, Simon Conway Morris, and he has a great book uh, that, that really discusses um, th this whole issue and this massive amount of convergence that we see. And what he concludes in the, in, in the book is that everything about humans is convergent. Like all, all of the things that make up our, our attributes and, and the things about us are convergent. So what he says is, boy, it sure looks like if everything about us is convergent, that we're the inevitable outcome of evolution. So from an evolutionary standpoint, it, it is heading and it's going to make humans. I mean, that's just, if, if the world is and evolution is really what drives everything forward, it's going to make humans. Now, where this to me is really significant and important is, is I look at, at biological convergence and I say that there's really only three possible explanations for it. And the first explanation is, would be to take an, an atheistic approach or a naturalistic approach and just say, hey, the, the, all of convergence is out there, or the reason for convergence is because it's just a brute fact. That's just the way things are. <laughs> but I mean, that, then you're still, but in order to come at this brute fact, you're relying on all this fine tuning and all these things that have to be exactly wow. right for this to happen. So it's just pure coincidence and it's just fortuitous that we have these things that, 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 that everything winds up pointing to us. I mean, that, that seems like a real stretch. So then yeah. the second option that you have is that there's some sort of a theistic evolution where, where God set it up in advance and, and, and it's, and everything is coming to fruition the way that he had intended based on the properties of the universe. And so I think what's interesting to me about that is that it kind of takes away one of the biggest criticisms that people have of theistic evolution in that, um, that theistic evolution makes it appear like it's an unguided process mm -hmm. because when you take in the evidence from convergence, it really starts to look like it's a guided process. If indeed that's what it is. But then there's the third option as well. And this is what I think is so interesting about convergence 
is the third option is a really powerful argument of a designer. I mean, even though the second one has a designer as well, the third one is that maybe it's just a common blueprint. In other words, you see one organism here, and this is something that works really well. So it makes sense that God would use that same design and that same blueprint when creating, whether through, you know, through special creation, another organism over here with those same attributes. So it's just like when someone makes a, when someone builds a car, you know, a car works. So if I'm going to make another car, it's going to look a lot like that one. There may be some different things, but, but it's going to look a lot like that one because I've built something that works really well. Yeah. And so it, so I think what's interesting to me about convergence again, is there's only three possible outcomes or, or, or three possible reasons where convergence could, or that could, can ex adequately explain convergence. And one of those three, I mean, it, it just doesn't, there's, there's no reason at all to believe that this is just a brute, you know, it's a brute fact. We're just, it's fortuitous. We're lucky to be here. And it's just a coincidence. Yeah. That makes, yeah. Well, to, I mean, to be honest with you, I, as I was thinking about that, the last two um, um, episodes of the podcast uh, before this one goes out, actually were about logical fallacies. Uh, and I, I immediately, when that jumped out at me, because I hear this objection all the time, like whenever, whenever something is difficult to explain, oh, well, that's just the way the universe is. Uh, it's, it's a brute fact, uh, you know, where, you know, it's like the guy who, uh, what was it, Alan Guth, who said that the universe is just um, the ultimate free lunch. Um, this is a logical fallacy. This is the fallacy of a relevant thesis. All you have done is tell me that we're here. Well, we already know we're here. We need a why. We need a why, uh, an answer to the question. And there is no answer to the question when you just say, oh, this is the way things are. Um, to me, that's not satisfactory. And I suspect mm -hmm. it's not to either of y'all either. Uh, right. And, you know, I mean, that's, man, that's absolutely uh, amazing. Um, um, you know, Gary, do you have any thoughts on this particular thing? Or, Well, I think Josh uh, really covered that, that terrifically. Um, yeah. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to that. Uh, if I, since I have the microphone now, if I could just step back a minute. I, I misspoke when I mentioned the name for that uh, large super colony in California. It's not yeah. the giant ant colony, but it's called the very large colony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure to get that one right, Gary. <laughs> yeah, I gotta make, as a scientist, I've got to make sure I get it right. But it is amazing where uh, ants from, say, San Francisco all the way down to where near Josh lives in San Diego, they're part of that same colony. And uh, you, can wow. put them, you can put them together and they won't fight. Wow. Then, then there's a smaller colony called the Hodges colony. Hopefully I get this right. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and that's uh, in Southern California as well. And when you put group ants from those two groups together, they'll fight to the death. And in fact, each year on the on the border there, there are millions of ants that are killed. As they yeah, I go mountain biking out there and about by Lake Hodges, Gary. Yeah. So yeah, you can see the the wars going on sometimes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow, man, that's, that oh, is that's, absolutely awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. Just want to clear the record on that one. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That is absolutely great. Um, all right. So, yeah, I mean, so convergence. So it already seems like we're off to a great start. We've only, we're only really one, one good thing into the book, and we've already got a, a pretty big challenge um, to, 
naturalistic, you know, Darwinism. <laughs> I mean, we, we're already uh, off to the races here. It looks like no matter which view you take, um, you're going to have to to admit some sort of design. And this might be a good place to mention. Um, you know, I mean, this is not um, this is not a secret to evolutionists. And in other words, let me put it this way, you know, I mean, Dawkins himself, one of the most well-known, you know, atheistic uh, biologists, evolutionary biologists there is, he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And in a sense, this was the subject matter. I don't know how much entity speaks to convergence, but it's certainly, he wants to say that when we look at nature, we see design. But guess what his explanation for that is? Evolution. Evolution has tricked us, and evolution has um, has fooled us into seeing design in in nature. So it seems like um, evolution is just the uh, the unfalsifiable uh, you know explanation that it just it, it can seemingly account for everything. And you know what they say about things that account for everything. Um, sometimes depending on what it is, it won't account for anything. Um, you have to have, be able to falsify what, you, uh, what you're proposing. And so I think that's really interesting that even, even the most atheistic of biologists want to, to some degree, admit that we see design, but apparently, again, we're just supposed to see design because that's what evolution has done. So um, it, it all goes back to this logical fallacy for me. It's you haven't really given us anything substan- substantive. You know, there's no answer there. It's just kind of, you know, back to the drawing board. So uh, so that's great. Well, hey, let's, let's move the conversation a little bit. Uh, let's talk about beetles. Um, so in the book, Rick Gerhardt mentions the infamous suggestion by J.B.S. Haldane, uh, and he was, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was an evolutionary biologist of days gone by. It was the 20th century, I believe, um, that if a creator exists, uh, he has an inordinate fondness for stars and for beetles. Uh, so he mentions uh, the cosmic mass density as kind of a teleological sort of apologetic for the existence of so many stars, which is very interesting. However, our conversation is about something on a, on a bit smaller scale than the universe. Um, so what about beetles then? Um, Rick writes that each of the ecological roles played by animals as a collective is performed by one or more species of beetle. Man, when I read that, I was totally blown away. I thought, how is that even possible? It sounds extraordinary. Gary, let me ask you on this one. I mean, what kind of things do beetles do for the environment? Well, they're really important in the environment and the the thing too is that basically they live everywhere and do everything. <laughs> it's kind of a, a quick way to sum it up. But wow. if we look at the number of beetles, um, there's about 350,000 described species of beetles in the world. But there's many more that have not been discovered yet. So that number will grow. And just to put it in perspective, uh, my favorite group of insects, the ants, there's about 14,000 described species. And uh, despite their great success, they, you know, far fewer species than there are beetles. Wow. So being everywhere, doing everything, um, they, some of the contributions they have to our environment is that uh, many of them will feed on other insects and arachnids and so forth, uh, and some, some of which are pests, so it helps uh, control our pests. They feed on arachnids. I'm liking them better already. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. 
They're very good hunters. And uh, some also will feed on plants, and, which many are weeds, and so it helps in weed control. In some areas, uh, beetles are introduced as a biological control for, for weeds and so forth. And yeah. uh, now, also as hunters, they uh, sometimes are our food for larger animals too, so it helps in that. Uh, they're pollinators is another example. We always think of uh, bees and, as pollinators, but uh, beetles too contribute a great deal on that. I'm, uh, I enjoy photography. I do a lot of macro photography of uh, wildflowers and insects. And it amazes me. I, I come home with my photos and I look closely at the flower I've taken. And there's a, a tiny little beetle on the flower, uh, which is contributing to the pollination. I don't even see it until I uh, magnify it with uh, the macro photography. And so uh, that, that's just a few of the things. And, and also, in my mind, they just make our life more interesting. Many oh, don't forget, about, don't forget just, about poop, Gary. <laughs> what, what's that? Don't forget about poop, what they do for us there. Oh, oh yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I, I was going to leave that for you, Josh, to comment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I could tell a story. Josh knows this, but I'm not going to go there right now about my thesis. And uh, but um, so I'll just leave it at that. But yes, they do uh, decompose uh, 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 organic materials and uh, and so forth. So they're just <laughs> tremendous in what they do. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, that's incredible. Can you repeat one more time how many species you said there was of, of beetle? Yeah, there's uh, I, I looked this up recently. There's uh, uh, currently it's believed there's about 350,000 species of beetles. Wow. And, and it's the largest largest order of insects and of course they're in the order Coleoptera. Wow. Goodness. Man, that's yeah, that's incredible. And only 14,000 in comparison of ants. Yeah, that's so yeah, that's, that's something. Um everywhere yeah. too so yeah yeah and, and so i mean the fact that they're you know they live everywhere and they do everything you know i think that's interesting especially considering um haldane's suggestion you know i mean i think needless to say um he spoke a little bit too soon um there are uh, as a matter of fact good reasons and, you know and i hear this you know this kind of thing too all the time i mean talking about the stars thing it's like you know, we're alone in the universe. I, I, you know, I draw a completely opposite conclusion on that. You know, the fact that you've got this expansive universe and yet here we are just this one, you know, um, what it, some people say, you know, this one insignificant planet near this one insignificant star, you know, surrounded by a couple other insignificant little moons, you know, whatever it is. But I'm just like, man, the fact that, uh, out of all of that, that God created. I don't even know how many trillions of light years the universe is across, but uh, that God loves us and his eyes on us. And I read Matthew six and we start talking about the fact that, um, that he cares for, you know, the, uh, the birds of the field and he's arrayed the lilies and all of this, and how much does he love and care for us? Um, just to get, to, to get a little yeah. theological and a little spiritual, I think that's incredible. So, Steve, uh, Steve I, I want to add something real quick. The, yeah. uh, it's not insect-related, but it's related to the discussion here. Uh, recently, my son and I were having a conversation, and, and he was really uh, interested in the fact that, you know, we were watching one of these videos that people produce on, on uh, like, looking at space and then and zooming in. It was like one of those things where you could zoom in and zoom out. So, it, it basically showed starting at a human, you, you zoom all the way out, 
and, and how big space is, and then you zoom all the way in and, and how small of a particle we can see. And he said, Dad, it's, it's really crazy. We're right in the middle. I was like, wow, that's wow. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I certainly don't want to go too far into this discussion, but there, you know, some of the yeah. be, being a young age creation and some, some of the starlight models and things kind of toss out the cosmological principle, which says that, you know, I mean, the cosmological principle basically says that we're not and that there is no special place in the universe. There is no favored place in the universe. Um, and so sometimes uh, some of the young age creationist models for starlight and things like that um, toss that out. And so I don't know. I just, uh, I think oh, no, it's no, no. I, I don't, he wasn't saying that we we're in the middle of the universe. He was saying that in size wise, like, we're Oh, I see. Yeah. It's like, there's things, these, the magnitudes larger than us versus the magnitude smaller. I see. Right in the center of the size of everything. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I missed that. Okay, well, that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's that's great. But, I mean, just to, yeah, to finish that thought, I, what if we were at the center of the universe? You know, I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know, just, hey, that's uh, j just the, the way that um, – uh, that God loves and cares for us. I think that's incredible. Uh, and we can see it all around us. And how, I mean, yeah, so, so he was saying that we are about the, you know, average size or right in the middle size of the biggest things and the largest things that we can, or the, the, and the smallest, and the smallest yeah, yeah, that we observe. Now, oh, very, very cool. Very cool. And from the, you know, from the mouth of babes, right? That's, uh, uh -huh. That's, that's very, very cool. Um, okay, so uh, Gerhardt claims in the book, and um, I didn't write down what chapter this was, so forgive me there, but um, I might have been the same one talking about beetles. He says, yeah, is, yeah. okay, yeah. So, so he says that, um, I'm going to quote him here, uh, the physical similarity among all living things is best explained as ecological necessity. Humans, plants, birds, amphibians, and lightning bugs are all a part of the same great ecosystem, and every component is designed, there's that word, in such a way that, it is, that its individual atoms and molecules are useful to and used by other components. There's nothing random or unintended about this marvelous system of systems um, within systems. What a claim. Uh, what do you guys make of that? Well, I, I think the statement kind of stands on its own. I mean, it, it, it's the fact is that, and then we've been talking about it, that how like beetles fill all these ecological niches and that there's a necessity and a purpose for every one of the insects that are in these ecological niches. And, and so it goes right against what we were just talking about, Haldane, you know, his, his quote that, that, you know, where he's trying to imply that uh, since there's all these different beetles, you know, there, there, there must not be a God, but it, it it's this flies in the face of that it, it there's absolutely a purpose for all of these different creatures there's there's a system that is 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 a complex system that where everything is working together and uh I, you know I, t I talk about i use the uh the uh a psalm in 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 the chapter that i have on convergence too and and i think you know as that system as the system changes let's see if i can find the psalm But as the system changes, you know, there, there are different, different species that fill in the ecological niches. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean. Psalm 104. Yeah, it's from Psalm, Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Good deal. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, what an amazing thought that, you know, um, things, it's just too 
That's another thing my pastor says. It's just too real not to be real. The design that you see, <laughs> it's just too real not to be real. Uh, and um, d- just how everybody works together. And I don't know, um, I, don't, I think in one of the, uh, it might have been a little bit in Gerhardt's chapter, I think in other chapters too, the, the, the whole thing of symbiosis was mentioned a little bit. Um, everybody depends on one another. You know, there are, and I think that's somewhat of an irreducibly complex argument too, is to say that, you know, there, some of these symbiotic relationships seem really, really, um, it's really, really strange that we would see these kind of things to pop up without any kind of intended design being part of the mix. All right, well, that is it for part one of our interview with Josh Shoemaker and Dr. Gary Brannis on God in the World of Insects. Certainly hope you enjoyed everything that we discussed in this first part. Uh, if nothing else, I hope you're excited for part two because this is certainly uh, an exciting book. I encourage you to get the book. It's a great read. It's not that expensive. Go out and grab this book. You're going to get a wealth of information from a wealth of knowledgeable people. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Hey, let's close out in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love and appreciate you and thankful, Lord, for uh, even the smallest of creatures, Lord, that you've given us in this world to study and appreciate and even to learn from. Father, it's just a blessing, Lord, that we uh, get to study your world, to take dominion over this earth and to, to, um, to, to interact with your creation in the way that you uh, ordained us to do. We love you, Father, and thank you so much for the opportunity to become a son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, again, thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time, and uh, I encourage you uh, to like, um, you know, share, rate, review this podcast if it uh, if it helps you, if you enjoy it. We'd really appreciate that. If you're a first-time listener, head to steveshram.com slash defend. We want to send you a free course just for being a part of what we're doing here. All right, thanks. God bless. See you next week, and bye-bye.